Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk, part of the Seneca Network from SupChina. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider, here today with longtime friend of the show, Matt Sheehan, a fellow at the Paulson Institute's think tank, Macro Polo. Hey, Matt. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for coming on the show today. So today we're going to cover two topics. First, on Google's China ambitions, and second, the state of AI in China. Let's start this episode talking about Google. So, Matt, could you first walk us through the the origin story of Google's experience in China and sort of how it's changed over time? So you talk about this era from 2006 to 2009 as Google's China 1.0. So what was going on back then? Sure. So Google leadership decided to enter China around 2005, and, and by enter China, I mean bring their search product to China, and that launched in early 2006, and the person they brought on board for that was Kaifu Li, who had previously launched Microsoft Research Asia. And so from 2006 to 2010 was when they were going head-to-head with Baidu for the Chinese search market, and there was a ton going on. It was, you know, I liken it to playing three-dimensional chess. They were sort of simultaneously competing with Baidu in the business sense. They were, uh, you know, wrangling with the Chinese government over censorship restrictions. And they're also wrangling with their headquarters back home over sort of their ability to localize, how long of a leash did they have, and how could they balance the need to keep the Chinese government okay with them, if not happy with them, and also keep Mountain View from feeling like Google was betraying its values. Because, of course, the key prerequisite to them entering the market was agreeing to censor search results. So in a lot of ways, Google China 1.0, this 2006 to 2010 period, was very they were really being pulled in many directions at the same time while also facing very fierce competition in the business sense. And yeah, it was a super challenging period. They sort of worked their way up to about one third market share around 2010 before the sudden pullout. Uh, so before we talk about the uh, the circumstances which led to Google leaving China, uh, I'd like you to mention the famous Baidu ad kind of typifying the differences between the two search engines. So what what was this ad and what did this sort of say about the competition between the two firms? Yeah, this is probably one of the most notorious ads in the history of the Chinese internet. And it was a way for Baidu to try to drive a wedge between Google and Chinese users. So the... First, I'll describe the ad, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. Basically, it's a showdown uh, between a Chinese sort of poet jester dude and a arrogant American in a top hat. And next to the American is a Chinese woman in, I think, a blonde wig and like a wedding dress. And she's kind of like fawning over the American, and the crowd is all thinking, oh, this, you know, American is so smart. And the Chinese guy is kind of a nimble uh, jester-like figure. And basically, the American starts off thinking that he can speak Chinese, and he sort of says a few words in like heavily accented Mandarin. And the Chinese jester basically starts playing tongue twisters with him and saying like, "Ni zhi dao, ni bu zhi dao, wo zhi dao, ni bu zhi dao," and he's just kind of going and like basically running linguistic circles around this American. And as the American starts to stumble over his words more and more, the crowd abandons the American, stops fawning over him. Finally, the woman uh, also leaves his side and goes over to the side of the Chinese guy. The American in the top hat starts like spitting up blood and eventually like 
like keels over on the cobblestones while the crowd surrounding the Chinese local champion all chants uh, Baidu Geng Dong Zhongwen. So, you know, Baidu understands Chinese better. And that was like the the thesis that Baidu was putting forward at the time for why they should, you know, win out over Google. Like, don't go with this arrogant American who doesn't really understand the language. Uh, Baidu understands Chinese and, you know, kind of go with the hometown hero. Yeah, if you think the uh, the Mac PC or the AT&T Verizon ads are stuff are are tough, not uh, Verizon never said had AT&T dying at the end of one of theirs. Yes, like spewing blood from his mouth. <laughs> so 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 what did this tell about the broader the broader competitive dynamics? Yeah, so it actually is revelatory in the sense that this was a real challenge that Google faced when it first went in. I think a lot of people on the Google team and a lot of people around the world assumed from the start that, of course, you know, Google, it's this, it's sort of the golden boy of the internet at this time, and well, really through the present day in many ways. And the assumption was that, you know, the technology is so strong, it's going to go in and win this market on its own merits. But one of the problems they faced was their uh, search algorithms weren't very good at parsing Chinese language speech, specifically when it came to surfacing relevant results that were kind of new, like trending topics. So this is something that's been reported and acknowledged by a lot of people who were in Google at the time, that when they came in, they were actually, from just a pure like product and technical sense, they were behind Baidu, and they had to spend a lot of time working to catch up. And, you know, the, by their own measures, by Google's internal measures, over the course of their time in China, they were able to catch up and then surpass Baidu in surfacing relevant results. But it by no means was this totally clear situation right at the beginning where, you know, the American company is so superior, the Chinese company sucks, and they, you know, they can only survive because of protectionism or something like that. And that's that's what Baidu was driving at on both a practical sense, like we are a better search engine and very much on like a nationalistic, patriotic, uh, you know, don't go with these arrogant laowai sense. That, that's interesting. It, was there something about Chinese which was particularly hard for the algorithm? Or was it just uh, the fact that Google really didn't have any hard competitors in these other uh, second, you know, second languages around the world? So they weren't really pushed to um, develop their algorithm to to be really good at this, you know, koyu uh, type content. So I'm not sure about the strength of their competitors in other markets. I think, you know, Chinese in terms of grammar, uh, is a world away from English. I think that perhaps a lot of the, uh, parsing of sentences and parsing of meaning to the extent that an algorithm parses meaning, at least in terms of surfacing results that would carry over much more directly from like Latin and Greek based languages, whereas Chinese or East Asian languages, broadly speaking, would be quite different. But I don't know the details on how Google say fared against a Japanese competitor. So now coming to 2010 and Google leaving China. So it's a misconception, actually, that it was censor- the issue of censorship that pulled Google out of China. So what was the, um, uh, what was the leading cause that, that made the Mountain View leadership decide to leave? So definitely the event that incited the action that made it happen at this place at this time was a major hacking attack on Google and actually a bunch of other U.S. Uh, internet companies and technology companies that Google traced back to China and believed that it linked to the Chinese government. The Chinese government, of course, denies this. But this was the attack was known as Operation Aurora. They discovered it in late 2009 and included both theft of intellectual property, but also 
hacking attacks and phishing attacks on the Gmail accounts of uh, certain Chinese dissidents or activists overseas, including this was when I was a senior at Stanford and a, a girl, a young woman at Stanford who is a Tibetan activist actually had her Gmail um, hacked in this way. So this was occurring. I, uh, they were sort of working on the issue over Christmas 2009. And on January 10th, 2010 was when they made a big and like quite sudden announcement that they were pulling out in a blog post titled A New Approach to China. And so it's a little bit hard to unpack, you know, probably if if all of the censorship, uh, you know, Google violating its core values, that whole conversation hadn't been happening before. It's unclear if Operation Aurora would have pushed them over the edge, you know, whether this was an aggravating factor or the core issue. But yeah, definitely, at the very least, the straw that broke the camel's back and the inciting event was this hacking attack. So so this this blog post and subsequent interviews by senior Google leadership made you get the sense that in 2010, 2011, they had really drawn a line in the sand and had no interest playing uh, playing games in China anymore. But, you know, coming down to this new courtship phase, which you date at 2015 up to the present. So what changed in Google leadership's uh, and Google leadership's mindset that made them want to reengage? Yeah. So I think that if you break it down into kind of these different phases, 2006, 2010, that's Google China 1.0. That's them competing directly in the market. 2010 to 2014, 15 is this sort of stalemate. Google has retreated to its Hong Kong servers. It's getting intermittently blocked. And finally, in 2014, you get a full block of all Google products. And you can think of it where when Google makes the decision to exit, in a certain sense, they are placing a bet. They are they're betting that the Chinese government, that the Chinese internet sector needs Google more than Google needs China, that Google can take a hard line and China will either, you know, relent and let them back in or the Chinese internet like won't be able to thrive without them and eventually they will, you know, have a way back into the country. And while that sort of whole strategy is not spelled out in their public statements, you can draw it from various uh, quotes from people like Eric Schmidt, sort of people predicting that the Great Firewall will fall, that you know the, the you can't build a, I think his quote is, you can't build a modern knowledge economy this way. And so Google is sort of betting that you know without it in that market, things might stagnate and eventually the power dynamics will reverse and Google will be let back in. But in that period, 2010 to 2015, is really kind of a, a blossoming period for China's domestic internet companies. So I think this is a period where you really see the power dynamics between the company and the country or the company and the Communist Party reversing. And the, the key act there is that China sort of proves to its or the Chinese government proves to itself and to its people and its companies that it actually can build a thriving, innovative, profitable and highly controllable internet, that it does not need the Silicon Valley giants. You know, it's already kicked out Facebook and Twitter in 2009, Google's out in 2010, and many people are predicting that this is kind of the, uh, you know, the internet will, the Chinese domestic internet will stagnate and go nowhere. But instead, you have the launch of WeChat, you have in 2014, Alibaba having a record-breaking IPO on the stock exchange, you have all these new business models of, you know, O2O, online to offline commerce, and the, the whole ecosystem is just kind of getting more and more uh, profitable and, and exciting from a business perspective at the same time that they're clamping, kicking out foreign companies and also clamping down on political speech online. So they somehow pull off this trick 
And by 2015, I think the Google leadership has sort of come to the conclusion that no, they're not going to just be you know, invited back in because they're needed. They need to find some way to muscle their way back into this market. And that's when they begin what I call a everything but search strategy. So they basically, they first start trying to get in the Google Play Store, an Android app store. They try to push Google Translate, Google Scholar, uh, Android Wear app stores. They have basically a bunch of different sort of peripheral products that they're trying to get back into China through different methods. Some with some success, like Google Translate has had, has had success in getting back in, but the big ticket, the bigger ticket items, the Google Play App Store, have not. And so that takes us, this sort of uh, everything but search strategy goes on from about 2015 to at some point in 2017. And now we come to Dragonfly. So what's going on, uh, what's going on with this project, which has caused so much, uh, uh, so much turmoil within Mountain View? Yeah, so Dragonfly was revealed to the broader world uh, in August of 2018. The reporting on it says that it has roots as far back as, uh, I believe, mid-2017, and it really kicked into high gear in late 2017. So the, the big picture, of course, is that they want to bring uh, Google Search back to China via an, an app. The project's code name is Dragonfly, although that might not be the name of the actual app itself. And basically, they are willing to uh, they are willing to censor search results. They are willing to meet the Chinese government where they met them in 2006, sort of going back to that uh, back to that starting point. And this has caused a lot of uproar within the company, with some people resigning, and you know the leaders being challenged at sort of the company all hands and stuff like that. And it's also led to a lot of criticism of Google from both human rights groups, the U.S. government, even Vice President Mike Pence, and all these folks basically saying, you know, don't do it. If you give in, if you yield this ground, then it's sort of game over on internet freedom in China. As if it wasn't already. I mean, I, I love I love the whole the whole argument from 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 President from Vice President Pence saying, um, you know, this is going to be the nail in the coffin. It's like, Dude, we've got plenty of nails in this coffin already. I think I think the body's rotting at this point. So is there anything to that argument? Um, do you see uh, what do you see as the potentially negative consequences uh, for Google being allowed to enter? So there's consequences domestically in China and there's consequences more globally. Um, within China, in some sense, the U.S. internet companies have already yielded a lot of this ground. When Google Play, when Google was trying to get the Google Play App Store back in, they had it agreed, according to the reporting, which is highly believable, they had agreed to censor apps within the App Store, most likely VPN apps. It's something that Apple already does. LinkedIn has already come in with a censored version of its product. Facebook has allegedly built a censored version of its product that hasn't been allowed back in. And... I think the idea that by Google holding out, it will fundamentally change the situation within China, probably not going to do much at this point. Yeah, it seems like there are much more powerful forces at work than um, you know what Google wants China to do in terms of what's going on with, with relative to internet freedom. Yeah, there are definitely more powerful forces at work. I think some of the interesting implications are globally. Over the past decade, we've seen a lot of countries around the world pushing back against tech companies on these issues 
and gaining more and more traction with them. So there are some versions of this that you know we Americans are more prone to liking. For example, the European right to be forgotten or GDPR, instances in which the we you know deem them to be somewhat legit, if, if different than what we desire, something like the right to be forgotten, where you're allowed to request that your information is removed from Google search if it's outdated or irrelevant or something like that. We've sort of deemed that to be an okay uh, pushback on total Wild West internet freedom. But you got to imagine that places like Iran, Egypt, Myanmar, you know, you name it, are in some way going to be looking to this China-Google dynamic. And while China is a particularly powerful actor in this situation because it has such a large market, you can very much see the governments of these other countries going to their local Google government relations people and saying, hey, come on, guys, you did it for them. What's your what's your deal? What's the hang up? Yeah, exactly. And so you can imagine these ripple effects working around the globe. I think to a certain extent that is already happening, but this would definitely be one of the highest profile markers or concessions to this type of internet governance censorship. Yeah, yeah it feels it feels like a shame, but my sense is this that ship's already sailed at this point. Um, you 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 have uh, you have these these American social media companies already basically having buckled under the threat of uh, shutdowns. Governments have shown that they're they're willing and able to just pull the plug on a website or a you know or even the whole internet if it comes to that. And so to uh, to secure the market, it seems like uh, you, you're reading more and more stories of the likes of, of of Facebook, Twitter, not quite as much, but Facebook in particular, um, being being comfortable and willing with putting in certain content requirements um, on a country by country basis. So I'm not I'm not super sold on. The um, I think I think Google doing this whole Dragonfly project is more an indication and a sign of the times as opposed to a, um, you know, a fundamental switch in the way that these companies are thinking about these sorts of these sorts of issues. Yeah, I think that in many ways, this tide has turned that, you know, a decade ago, many people would have found it quite unbelievable that these companies would yield so much ground to both censorship and to sort of chopping up the market. There, there was the ideology of sort of internet freedom, absolutist internet freedom was much stronger back then. And now we kind of see the many shades of gray in this situation, you know, with Europe being a very light gray to, you know, in many people's eyes, China being the, you know, furthest black or whatever, the most uh, restrictive internet environment in terms of political speech and stuff like that. You know, what's interesting is this This is also a trend playing out domestically in the U.S. I mean, you see Alex Jones getting pulled from uh, from the uh, iTunes podcast store, from from Twitter. It's it's not it's not something that's only going on in uh, authoritarian regimes, this this kind of bounding of what is and isn't appropriate and the and the narrow and the narrowing really of of where um, of where the line for accepted speech on these platforms lies. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think this is a tricky one because there are many kinds of speech and activity online that we clearly think, you know, there's a legitimate reason for controlling or blocking. And we do want to color in those many shades of gray. That's part of like the internet coming within our social governance, basically, in the US. But at the same time, yeah, I, I guess I. I do think that there, you know, you, at some point you have to draw a line somewhere, and there's a there's a you know a slippery slope argument that as we just you know give a little ground here, give a little ground there, and then suddenly there's like you know no principles underpinning these actions. But 
yeah, it's it's a tricky one, and I I guess what has somewhat influenced my thinking. When I first heard this news, I was very sort of down about it. I was, I was very kind of negative on it. I'm like, you know, why of all things, why do you need to bring search back? Why can't you be happy with the hundreds of billions of dollars that you're worth and that you're making already? So I put the question to my Chinese friends and contacts on WeChat. If Google were to re-enter China with a censored search engine using, you know, a euphemism for censorship, would you use it or would you continue to use Baidu? And there was something of a mixed bag of answers. Some people saying, well, you know, if it's censored, then like, who really cares? Same thing. But probably overwhelmingly, the answer, the the most common answer was something like, of course, I would use that. Like Baidu is awful. Or of course, I would use it. There's so many ads on Baidu or the search results are terrible or I can't get international news or something like that. And to me, that's the... If there's a if there's a tricky moral question here, that's that's it. Is do you want to give people a marginally better experience? Info, you want to give them a marginally better information environment while reinforcing the boundaries, or do you want to hold out against those boundaries and say, I think I can do more good by not participating in that? And that's one where I sort of take it on a case-by-case basis, and I, I don't know where I come down on each company and what they're offering and what they're conceding. So when people talk about how Baidu is terrible, um, if if you're from the U.S. and you're used to using Google, just like spend three weeks using Bing. Um, your life just gets worse. Um, and, and the thing about Baidu is it's actually even worse than like a not very good search engine because of the amount of ads that blanket the website. So you can go, you know, two or three pages deep asking a pretty straightforward question of like, you know, where can I get, uh, you know, like what's the best place I can get a hand surgery done? And the first two or three pages are advertisements. And it's not it's not labeled nearly, nearly as clearly as the sponsored stuff that you see in Google when it's like the first one or two. So, you know, even though there is this abstract, um, there abstract rich, which I think risk, which I think is totally real of reinforcing these these divides and legitimizing the censorship system. At the same time, you know, there are hundreds of millions of people out there who are not able to um, access knowledge and that knowledge do- isn't necessarily always tied up with Tiananmen in 1989, right? There's there's more stuff to like a fulfilling life than those censored search, search terms and Google really has the power if they turn their algorithm on to create something that that is a really useful product that will, you know, make scholars of, you know, ancient Chinese poetry happier because they'll be better able to search the literature around, you know, Baifu or what have you. So there's there there's more there there there's more to it than like people just whining that Baidu sucks, I think. Yeah. I think that it's a I was surprised at how stark the divide between people inside China and outside China were on this question. And it has just made me pause a little bit more in my judgment on this. And yeah, I currently I, I don't know where I'd come down on this. So let's turn now to Chinese AI. So congratulations, Matt, on the book you recently worked with Kaifu Li on, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. And if you guys all out there want to listen to Kaifu be interviewed, he just recently did a great show on the Seneca channel. So turning now to, to you, Matt, what, what recently have you been grinding your gears on with, uh, with respect to Chinese AI? Yeah, what I've been working on lately is trying to find a way to get a little more systematic in our analysis of what 
of where China is on artificial intelligence and how it got here. I think this is a topic that's just recently gone mainstream, just recently moved to the center of the U.S.-China relationship. And But the way we talk about it is not very systematic, and we don't have an understanding of what contributes to national strength in this area, national prowess in this area. And so what I'm working on is trying to break it down, trying to break artificial intelligence down into its component parts and then look at how China sort of fares in each of these dimensions. And this is, a, I'm working on a project with some folks at Macro Polo, Joy Dantong Ma and Jeff Ding, who's recently on this show and is the author of the China AI newsletters. So we're working on a project in this area. And the, the dimensions that I break it down into according to this sort of taxonomy is data, talent, company ecosystem, and government plan. And if you had to put another one in there, it would probably be semiconductors or chips, but currently leaving that out. So trying to look at each of these dimensions, data, talent, companies, plan, and say what makes China unique in this, what are its unique strengths, what are its weaknesses, and what can this tell us about its, uh, if we think about this in terms of competition with the U.S., where does it stand? Or if we just think about it in terms of how AI is going to be transforming Chinese cities, Chinese life, Chinese governance, how does this scale? So let's turn to ingredient number one, which may be the the most important in terms of making AI tick, data. So you have this great little taxonomy looking at the breadth, depth, access, diversity, and quality of data. So how does, the U- how does China do on all these different fronts? Yeah, what sort of inspired this, I think there's a lot of very loose or sort of not... Uh, yeah, not very precise talk about uh, China's data ecosystem. There's China's got so many people, they got to have so much data. Exactly. And I think that while there's a kernel of truth to that, it's really not the whole picture, not the most important part of the picture. So what I do with this is trying to break data down into these five dimensions, breadth, depth, access, quality, and diversity, and say, how does China fare on each of these? And these have very real implications for the practical application of AI. At least some of these are quite directly relevant to an AI optimization. So breadth, meaning sort of number of users, that's like your sample size in a training data set for optimization. Depth is more like the dimensions or features that would go into an AI optimization. You can almost think of this very crudely as like an XY axis um, or a multidimensional version of this. And so in terms of breadth, yes, China has a lot of people, but U.S. internet companies also have a lot of users. U.S. internet companies have users that are around the world, while China has a large domestic population. So in some ways, I think of this as the U.S. having a higher ceiling in terms of breadth of users, while China is able to scale a lot quicker, because for them to get to 300 million users, 500 million users, they can do it all at home, whereas the U.S. has to do that across a bunch of markets. So on the breadth dimension of this data comparison, I largely call it even between the two markets. Sure. I think depth is where it gets a little bit more interesting and also tends to tilt in China's favor. So if we think of depth as the number of dimensions or features on which an algorithm could optimize. If an algorithm wants to figure out whether or not it should give you a bank loan is kind of a classic version of that. How much does the algorithm know about you, your daily life, your behavior, all this kind of stuff? And this is an area where Chinese, the Chinese internet, the Chinese uh, app ecosystem just 
ends up bringing in many, many more dimensions of a Chinese person's life into digital data. While U.S. internet companies do a lot of work in terms of sort of capturing what you do online, what do you like, what do you, you know, what videos do you watch, who are your email contacts, they don't, they don't have as many eyes on what you're doing out in the real world. So a big aspect of this is mobile payments. The fact that, you know, Tencent and Alibaba are basically tracking the payments of, you know, hundreds of millions of people gives them a very detailed map of where people are in real time and where they're shopping, how much they're spending and stuff like that. Can you imagine how good election targeting would be in China, given all this stuff? I mean, Cambridge Analytica, like what a joke. They don't have every single purchase I've ever made. Right. I mean, this would really be to a new level if we ever saw that happen. If only there were elections. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that's a. so, yeah, in terms of depth, I think the the fundamental difference between the two ecosystems is the way that the Chinese ecosystem pulls so much more of your real-world activity. Where are you going on bikes? What food are you ordering and delivered to your house? Where do you make all of your purchases? This kind of stuff just gives it more angles on you, more angles on a user, and more angles on the population by which to optimize. Another big part of this is also it's the basically the you know, surveillance state or in its both police form and more it's like commercial form the fact that when cameras are capturing you know moving images of cities are capturing videos of life in cities what they're doing is they're turning real world activities into digital data they're turning how many people cross the street at a given point of time into a number that can be optimized along they're turning you know when you're in a store and you pick up a you know box of chocolates and you look at it and you put it back, they're turning that action into a piece of digital data that can be optimized. So yeah, it's, you know, that has its scary surveillance parts. It has its more pedestrian, uh, you know, life in an urban environment parts. But all of it does is it pulls more of people's daily life and turns it into digital data that can be optimized for, optimized along those dimensions. Going now to access, diversity, and quality. Maybe pick your favorite. <laughs> sure. Um, let's go diversity because that's a clear win for the U.S. The diversity of data, you know, if you're optimizing an AI service, you have to have a lot of data, but you have to have data on a relevant population. You're trying to pick up on patterns within that population, and so it has to be a, you know, it has to be able to transfer to a new version of that population. The fact that U.S. internet companies serve people all over the world, and that the U.S. domestic population is much more uh, ethnically diverse and linguistically diverse, at least in a way that applies to you know other countries. This gives uh, potentially U.S. internet companies a big advantage in that respect. There are 52 races in China. What are you talking about? There are 52 races. There are infinite dialects. Unfortunately, that does not necessarily apply when you are building a product for Pakistan. Fair. So yeah, this, you know, if you go through these different dimensions, which I'm, you know, working out in real time and bouncing these ideas off people, I think usually the, you know, even basically the two countries, even in breadth of data, China leading in depth, the U.S. leading in diversity and access and quality, you know, we can go into some other time. Yeah, I mean, I've, how's, how's Facebook doing in Mongolia? Do you have any sense of the, whether, whether uh, you know, Baidu's really hit that, hit their inner Mongolian stride? I think Baidu has probably hit its inner Mongolian stride. I don't think it's hit its Mongolian stride. Um, There's another book chapter for you. Yes, exactly. Um, Turning now to talent. 
Um, could you talk a little bit about the difference between the talent pool in the U.S. and China? Yeah, this is one where it's you can once again cut it from a million different angles. I think if you had to give the very shorthand version of this, you would say that the you know top ten, top one hundred. AI researchers, the vast majority of them are in the United States or affiliated with U.S. institutions and U.S. companies. But the further you go down the stack, if you look at the top 1,000, the top 10,000, the top 100,000, and you're looking more at sort of your... There are 100,000 Chinese researchers? Uh, there are 100,000 AI researchers out there? So this is when you're getting more, much more into the realm of application and engineers. Okay. So, sure. you know, the guy just making uh, optimizations in DD for, you know, routing, sure. something like that. This does not have to be a publishable academic paper, but it, you need someone with like the skill base to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And it's basically like the, you know, the U.S. is very top heavy in this department. And you can look at this. Uh, my colleague Jeff Ding is looking at this through who gives poster presentations at the most elite AI conferences, basically who's the absolute best of the best research. That's very much researchers that are affiliated with U.S. institutions. But as you go further down the stack, it starts to even out substantially. And also, if you cut the top of that different ways, like, for example, if you look at these people who are the best of the best researchers, where did they go to college or where did they grow up? You start to get a much larger portion of them from China. So Chinese researchers who are in the U.S. or other countries doing this work that are that might potentially work for a Chinese company as, say, Andrew Ng did. Interesting. So there's so there's like this like potential energy of all these uh, Chinese who haven't turned into Haigui uh, yet, but like maybe um, maybe um, options for the the Baidu's and Didi's of the world to come recruit and and work in their ecosystems as opposed to the American ones. Yeah, I'm sure that the Alibabas and Tencents and Baidu's of the world are trying to recruit from this population. And, you know, yeah, you can see it either way. You can see these as either people who are potential returnees to China, or you could see this as the great advantage of the U.S., you know, open academic clear, immigration. Clear skies, yeah, sure. Yeah, so uh, all, all this stuff is, is a bit of a double-edged sword. So you were talking about academic publications, and I'd like you to share an anecdote of you, you know, talking about this issue at Berkeley relatively recently and asking some of the researchers there what they thought of Chinese papers in this regard. Yeah, I, was, I recently gave a talk at a group called CHAI, the Center for Human Compatible AI at Berkeley that works on AI safety. And at the end of uh, the people I was speaking to were uh, AI researchers and PhDs. And at the end, I sort of turned the tables on them and just started quizzing them on, on their own experiences and whether or not they've read Chinese papers and what's their impression. And to me, it was, what was most striking is how much the their impression of reading Chinese AI publications really mapped well onto my experience in just so many industries and situations and lifestyles in China, which is, I asked them, you know, do you, do you read AI, uh, Chinese publications in this space? And they say, yeah, you know, I, I do. I come across them a lot. But how to put it? It's like they're, it's kind of messy. It's not really clear why they're doing this. They somehow come up with good results, but usually through just like throwing a lot more manpower or man hours at it. It's not a very elegant solution, but it kind of works somehow. But I'm not really <laughs> sure if I'm learning anything. I was like, wow, you know, I have felt that way about so many things in China, whether it's just like the, you know, the running of my local whatever or the, you know, building of a, of a high-speed rail or something like that. 
no, that 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 model uh, you would not necessarily expect to pattern onto technology research, but uh, certainly echoes in many, many, many aspects of life here in uh, here in the mainland. Yeah, just you know, throw throw human hours at it, throw money at it, throw raw power at it, and see what comes out the other end. It's not always elegant, but it often works. So one of the characters of your your book that'll be coming out at some point, China Fornia, is this AI researcher uh, turned entrepreneur who had this very interesting back and forth career life experience between the U.S. and China. I was wondering if you could walk us through uh, who this guy is and, and what you think his story tells us about these themes. Yeah, in many ways, this touches on what we were just talking about a minute ago about the about Chinese who go to study in the U.S. and ha- have the potential to return to China. So his name is Li Zhifei. He was grew up in central China, did college in China, and did a little work at a, a startup in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s. But after the sort of first internet bubble burst in 2001, he was sort of looking around for what to do and felt, you know, the real action, the real expertise, the real, uh, yeah, the real technologists are in the U.S. So he went to the U.S. to do a Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins, did a Ph.D. in machine learning. And when he graduated from there in 2010, he went over to Google and worked at Google Translate for a while. So it's the timing is kind of interesting at the exact same time that Google is pulling out of China, he is going into Google. And actually on his first day there, he met a guy named Mike Lay, who ended up being his uh, CTO and co-founder of his startup later. After a couple of years in Silicon Valley, sort of, you know, building up his technical chops, getting experience at the, you know, golden boy of Silicon Valley, when he wants to form his own startup, he decides to go back to China. So he went from uh, Mountain View to Shanghai and then to Beijing and founded a startup called Mobvoi or in Chinese Chumenwenwen, like go out the door and ask. And the goal was basically to build the Chinese Siri that uh, could, you know, answer questions, doing natural language processing and voice recognition. And Chinese Alexas do not understand me. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave open the question of whether that's your problem or their problem. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's an interesting thing that he grew, grows up in China, goes to the U.S. for advanced training, uh, gets experience at Google. When he goes back to China, one of the main reasons why there is an opportunity in this space is because this is right when smartwatches and also Google Glass was uh, getting ready to come out. And the fact that Google services were blocked in China was a market opportunity opportunity for him to build a Android version of these services. So he kind of takes those advanced skills back to China and forms a startup. And this is when I got in touch with him. I started following him and interviewing him around 2014 and went on a uh, went to a hackathon in the hills of Beijing when they were trying to build up their own smartwatch sort of voice interactive ecosystem. And over the years, he's done very well. Uh, Truman Wenwen has uh, signed a major partnership agreement with Volkswagen to bring, uh, you know, intelligent uh, voice commands to Volkswagen in China. They recently got included in the CB Insights top 100 global AI startups and top, you know, 10 AI startups in China. It's really thrived, and he's one of the, and in the process as his company was coming to its own, it also became one of the sort of potential backdoors for Google to try to get back into China. So in 2015, 
Google ended up investing in Mobvoi, and they used it as their partner for bringing voice search to Android Wear, to you know wearables on the Android system. So they formed a partnership, and for a while were sort of using his company as a way to get some of their services and products back into China. So he's a character who's like right at the center of a lot of these uh, both exchanges, in some cases tensions, and the rise of the Chinese internet ecosystem. And so that's why I found him and his company really interesting, and I, I sort of detail this more in Chinafornia. So we're all uh, setting out our pre-orders now. Um, thinking, about, uh, thinking about a what if, I mean, had Google not made Android this open source thing, uh, there may have been a much, a much bigger cost for China to kick, to kick them out in uh, 2009, 2010, because the, um, you know, the, the one level down, the, the Huawei OIS, is the, the, the Huawei phone operating system, I think actually could have really uh, thrown back development of the, of the internet here in China. That's, that's an interesting take. I actually hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, the, um, when Google left in 2010, that was also right around the time that Kai-Fu Lee was founding his VC firm and incubator. And he said to me, and he says in the book that you know, they saw this as in many ways a huge opportunity. He was sad that Google was leaving after all the work he put in, but it was also basically opening up a huge space for Chinese companies to build the Android apps that were going to populate this ecosystem and, you know, turn into the unicorns that kind of drive it forward. Yeah, I mean, it's really like a real... A real, you know, a real legacy, a real gift to the world. If you want to be uh, sentimental about it, uh, Google just creating this open source thing that has allowed um, uh, plenty of unicorns to bloom here in uh, here in China, even without them being able to make any real money off of it. So, turning now to the government plan aspect of the AI strategy here in China. So, what is it exactly, and what is the government trying to do to incentivize? more and more companies to uh, invest in and develop AI-related products. Yeah, I think there's tends to be a lot of misunderstanding about how a plan like this functions. And people tend to very much focus on the, the headline numbers where, you know, China says by 2020, we're going to do this. By 2025, we're going to do this. And by 2030, we're going to be the world's, uh, what is it, the innovation center of the world in artificial intelligence. And that's a bold prediction that does send a signal in terms of how much they value this coming from the state council. But, you know, if you're an actual official in China, what, what do you do with that? You know, what, what do you do with this claim that you are going to be the world's primary AI innovation center? I think the much more interesting part of the plan and the way that it sort of functions in practice is the way that local government officials respond to that signal. And this is something that I've spoke with a lot of AI startups about this a year ago, which was a few months after the plan had come out. And now I'm back in Beijing and talking to a bunch more of them. And it's very interesting to hear the updates in terms of how, how that plan has opened doors and opened markets at the local level. So if you've got local government officials, they've been told, okay, AI is a huge priority for the central government. They know that their own promotion depends on you know, the HR system, the organization department within the Communist Party looking well on them, and AI basically becomes another, you know, box that they can check or, you know, an extra credit assignment, if you want to think of it that way. And so you have then officials in all different parts of the country looking for some way that they can get AI going in their local area. And I think that you see a lot of them 
adopting, adapting, and kind of encouraging the aspects, the applications of AI that in some way make sense for them. So yesterday I was speaking with someone who works uh, with, does some sort of mediating between the government and enterprises, traditional businesses in Guangdong. And there's, he was describing a very proactive sense on the part of the government that we need to find some way to apply AI to our traditional industries. Guangdong is a manufacturing place, so there's all kinds of things you can do with computer vision on sort of quality assurance of products on stuff, you know, stuff like uh, furniture manufacturing, he said, is a very big one there. That applying AI, computer vision to quality assurance on furniture, pieces of furniture. And that's the kind of thing that the government can do it through uh, subsidies to the local enterprises to adopt the technology in some other areas. Like, for example, if you're a trucking heavy province, you know, somewhere in Dongbei or Shandong or something like that, you know, if, if you're a, a transportation official in a place like that and you get the signal that AI is you know, one of the top priorities for this year, or the next year, what are you going to do? You're going to find some way to bring that into your work so that maybe that means executing a pilot program for driverless cars. You're seeing this in Nanjing, where they're building, uh, in one part of the city, they're building an entire sort of second level, uh, a second level roads that is just for testing autonomous vehicles. You know, if you're in an agriculture province, maybe you want to bring uh, autonomous drones to spreading fertilizer, and you can do it through just subsidies, through public procurement, through adapting regulatory frameworks. And of course, one of the top uses of this that is going out in real time is surveillance and facial recognition. That's in many ways one of the easiest and most direct applications, and it's something that you know PSBs and the Ministry of State Security are are rolling out very rapidly around the country in in ways that are pretty scary. So, is this the Chinese government at its quote unquote best? Uh, in giving the private sector a push and investing smartly? Do you think there's a lot of waste here? Do you think um, this would all happen regardless? How would you sort of grade the Chinese government's effort at pushing forward this AI initiative? So the, you know, the final grade, only time will tell. We're going to have to see. But I think there are reasons to believe that this approach to this technology might be particularly effective. That's because AI is what's usually called an omni-use technology or a general purpose technology, meaning it's, it's a core functionality, the ability of a computer to learn from data, but it's one that can be applied to a million different things. It can be applied to computer vision, it can be applied to banking, it can be applied to autonomous vehicles, robots, everything. And so with something like this, you know, there's no way the government could have designed a totally top-down plan where it delivers orders to every, you know, every little provincial official and mayor and, you know, agricultural official and tell them what to do. But by sending this signal that they will be rewarded for doing something and then letting them figure out what is the sort of marriage between their own sector, their own area of governance, and this general purpose technology, you give that both the incentive but also the flexibility for them to do something. And I think if this works out, you know, to its best possible uh, configuration from the Chinese Communist Party's perspective, the what you have is potentially a, a campaign that is maybe very 
inefficient. You're going to spend a lot of more money than you know a strict economic analysis might warrant in the short term. But it's also very effective. I think this is this is a pattern you see over and over again in aspects of the Chinese government policy. They're willing to flood a sector or flood a problem with a lot of money or a lot of people. And while it's very locally ineffective, you're going to have tons of duds, tons of like uh, failure projects, boondoggles and stuff like that. But if the if the technology that you're working with is powerful enough, if it is transformative enough, you're absolutely willing to have those local duds for a broader economic sort of levering up of the economy. And that's one that it's going to depend on, you know, how how much of a productivity advantage does AI bring to these different sectors before we, you know, make the final judgment on that. But I think if AI sort of lives up to the current hype, if the uh, officials and the industries are smart and flexible in the way they adopt it, then they, you know, they could get the effect they're looking for with all the, you know, economic and convenience and some safety benefits and also all the nasty surveillance and, you know, authoritarian elements too. Matt, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. So for those looking for more great China-related content on the Seneca Network ecosystem, Sheng Chun for your lesson, a Chinese lesson for today, check out Tech Buzz China, their most recent episode on the O2O wars, the uh, Tencent uh, Alibaba proxy face-off between Ulama and Meituan. It's a fantastic uh, exploration of a really complicated back and forth between uh, uh, the O2O economy. And review me on iTunes. I guess that's something you're supposed to ask people to do on podcasts, right? There are currently two reviews, one of which I must admit is written by yours truly. So if you send a review, I will. I promise to mention your name and thank you personally on the next episode. Uh, so that's all for China Econ Talk today. Thanks so much. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SupChina. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shit